All right, well, like Michael said, uh, this is our second Sunday in the new sermon series on the life of David. Uh, and if you were here last week, you heard me talk a lot about Samuel and the context of what's going on with God's people in Israel at the time that David starts entering into the story, and also how strange it kind of is, honestly, that, that we don't get until 16 chapters into the book of 1 Samuel until we encounter David's name for the first time, right? So it's, that context is extremely important. And part of what we kind of missed, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm mostly skipping over the story of Saul between uh, the you know First Samuel chapter one and now because we're wanting to focus on David, but it's helpful to know and to catch us up that that Saul turned out to be exactly the kind of king that God told Israel he was going to be if they went through with their desire to have a king for themselves, a king like the nations. And when, when Samuel is saying, when Israel is asking for a king like the nations, they're asking for someone who is strong and powerful, who, who looks the part, who would be cast for the role of king of God's people in the proverbial movie, right? And we see, actually, a few chapters before this one, in 1 Samuel 13, that, that, that it goes real poorly. Uh, Samuel says to Saul, just a few chapters before, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What's being articulated here is this is like a good summary statement because what, what Samuel is saying is that King Saul has so abandoned God, he has so abandoned God's ways that he is no different from the kings like the nations around them, the ones who use their people for their own ends and are motivated by self-protection instead of servanthood, that he may as well be worshiping other gods instead of the God who is one of steadfast love and faithfulness toward his people. So much so that God's messenger, that's who Samuel is, God's messenger, God's prophet is afraid for his life in the passage that Michael read in chapter 16. And Bethlehem, it's, it's actually kind of funny, you can almost hear the anxiety even in uh, the English translation when it says that, like, what are your intentions for our town, right? When Samuel comes in, they're like, wait, the, the, the feud between Samuel and Saul is apparently so public that they are anxious about any possible retribution that might come as a result of their hosting Samuel. In short, it's not good, <laughs> right? And all of that is the context for verse 1 in chapter 16. And I want to kind of rephrase it a little bit because a more literal translation helps us see where the theme is coming from, which is when it says, I have provided among his sons, for myself a king. It, that word provided actually means I have seen. It's the word for seen that we translate as seen. And so when he's saying seen, like it's not just I'm looking and observing from a distance. He's saying his looking and seeing of David actually has done something. Just like when God speaks, God is also acting because you, there's no difference between his speaking and his acting. It affects creation when God speaks. It becomes into reality instantaneously. So too does his looking choose 
David. In fact, seeing is such a huge, it is a huge theme in in David's life. Seeing truly versus seeing through our sin or our finiteness, seeing as God sees versus seeing as man sees, and it becomes explicit in verse 7. Let me reread verse 7 because this is is very much the, the thesis of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so this morning, we're going to contrast these two different ways of seeing. And we're going to talk about this because it begs the question in the sense that what in the world does this have to do with modern life in a modern era? What could the way that Samuel versus the way that God sees his king that he chose for himself, what relevance could that have for us? Well, it turns out quite a bit. Let's talk about what it means to be see as man sees. It's focused on appearance. This is what is explicit in the text, um, and it's personified. It's almost foreshadowing what happens when Samuel walks up to Jesse and he presents his son. The first three sons are by name, right? Eliab, um, what was it? Yeah. Eliab, Abinadab, and Shema all pass by with this refrain, and the Lord has not chosen this one. But then it says they go through the rest of them, and, and, and all seven sons, and none of them are right, even though Samuel is expecting it based on their opinions, or sorry, based on their appearance. Um, most people have not, uh, if you haven't read this book, You've probably at least heard of it. How many of you have heard of the book Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman? Oh, man. Okay. This is a great book. You should buy it and read it, okay, because it's very prescient. He wrote this book in 1985, and Postman believed that the huge influx of mass marketing and TV and cable television that was soon to follow would be radically reshaping of society. And he illustrates this by talking about how in the mid-1800s, Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln, in the lead-up to the last election before the Civil War erupted, they did this series of debates, and it's fascinating to read about this because, first of all, um, the shortest of these debates in their kind of traveling uh, across the country, and especially middle America having these debates, uh, the shortest of them was three hours long. I mean, how many of you were like, even even with commercials, that's too long, okay? Um, And there were no commercials. It's just, just straight debate. Most of them, though, the average was over seven hours long. Let me remind you, there, were, there was no amplification at this time. Like, there were, there, was, there were no microphones. They had some gramophone and recording equipment, but there was no, like, like that. Man, I'd be, I get tired. My sermons feel a lot shorter now, don't they? Um, so there's no TV during this time, Right? But the, the transcripts of these debates would be published in the newspapers, and it, it captivated the entire country. It was all anything would talk about were these debates, and people would actually read the transcript of a seven-hour debate. It's a lot more than 140 characters, or however many it is now. It's 280, right, on Twitter? Anyway, okay. But the point is, 
And what's fascinating about this is it captivated the country. And everybody's talking about these debates. But if these two individuals walk down the street, is as iconic as we know Abraham Lincoln looked in hindsight, only about 4 or 5% of those walking past them down the street would recognize them as being someone in political leadership or significant, never mind specifically who they were. Four to five percent. Can you imagine voting for someone in an election now that you don't know what they look like? Especially a presidential election? But it, doesn't, it actually didn't matter then because the media and technological uh, advancement at the time was too limited for that to even matter at all. Thus, everyone was only able to evaluate the, the, the two debaters, their respective ideas not their image, not their appearance, but like what they actually thought and the, the content of their argument, the content of their ideas. Now, so what does this have to do with modern day and age, right? TV and social media in general, we live in the era that Neil Postman was describing being the trajectory we were heading on and social media said, that's true and hold my beer, right? Because what TV and social media does is it incentivizes image as the primary lens for evaluation. And that change, that switch, like most of us here, I think, are probably, you know, younger boomer, Gen X, or, or younger. And so we have only ever grew up in an era of TV and media where image was king, where appearance was king. But it has happened, and it even since then, it has accelerated far faster than we realized. Let me just like quantify this financially. Okay, Facebook bought Instagram in 2012. It's a little over 10 years ago, ago now. It's was wild that that happened 10 years ago, isn't it? And in 2012, Instagram, when they bought Facebook, they only had 13 employees and only 30 million users. Okay, 30 million sounds like a lot to me, but in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. They bought Instagram for $1 billion. Now, if you remember at the time when this happened, everyone thought Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg were nuts. Like, this is stupid. Instagram isn't even making any money yet. And this was kind of, uh, this, was, this was frequently kind of uh, highlighted or pointed out, like, this is Mark Zuckerberg's first major mistake. This is the first time He's made just something that's not intuitive, and it's going to backfire on him. And to some degree, that conversation and that criticism continued for a few years because it wasn't until 2015 that Instagram first made money. Like, made money, not a profit. First started generating revenue for Facebook, okay? But between 2015 and 2021, Instagram generated $110.5 billion in revenue. That's seven years and an amount of money that was 110 and a half times the amount that was paid for it. Now, that's a return on your investment, okay? But in 2022... Just 2022 alone, Instagram generated $51.4 billion. Half, like half of that seven-year period, Instagram did last year. That's it. It is accelerating. We are not on a linear curve in this sense. 
Instagram now accounts for 45% of Meta's total revenue. 45%. My point is this, is images are powerful. They are easier in many ways than ideas. And judging based on appearance by what is on the surface or external outward appearances rather than internally what is going on in the heart is significantly easier. It gets us off the hook in so many ways. This is why, if, if, you, if you follow politics at all, this is why people use the term vibe politics, right? Because it's more about a feeling, it's more about an experience of a person than it is the content of their ideas, right? It's why, like, it's, it's, it's practically a trope now, but one of the minimum qualifications of a political candidate for office, especially president, but kind of anyone, is would you want to go have a what with them? Would you want to have, go have a beer with them, right? That's, by, that's what we're talking about here. That has nothing to do with the content of their ideas. It has, to, it has everything to do with their image and their appearance. Postman predicted that pictures still or moving, photography or otherwise, right? They shape us to value the external. And words require internal affirmation. Sorry, re require internal reflection. And so that is why one of the ways that we live in denial and or avoid our inner lives is simply by hyper-focusing on appearance. If anything, it is, it is as American as apple pie. Like I said, appearance is easier, but what God is telling Samuel in verse 7 is that appearance is a distraction from benevolence. And seeing as God sees means to see benevolence. Let me reread verses 10 through 13 again to refresh our memories of after going through Jesse's 10 sons, this is what happens. Starting verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then, Je then Samuel said to Jesse, uh, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, remember that word youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, even as I, as I read this, you, something probably stuck out to you. And you're probably like, okay, well, if God looks at appearances, then why in the world, or sorry, if God looks on the heart and not appearances, then why in the world does 1 Samuel go out of its way to describe David as ruddy, which it, it, that means like young and, and healthy, and beautiful, having beautiful eyes and being handsome, right? Because even if his appearance is remarkable, literally, why remark on his appearance if, if, it, if that's not what it's about. If he doesn't look like a potential king, why, why do that? It's funny because I, I think there's something about our culture, and I, I was kind of trying to figure out, like, where does this come from? What is this? But we often, when we say, when we hear that something is not about blank, we kind of 
Like, we don't go far enough in rejecting the category and the premise of that statement, right? So when we say it's not about appearances, what we often will go to is like, well, God's not going to choose someone who is handsome and king-like and in stature. You're going to choose an ugly hunchback or something. I don't know. Like, like God's going to choose someone who is remarkably ugly, the equal and opposite thing, right? Like, that's, if it's not about appearances, that's what should happen, right? Well, if that is the case, then isn't that still about appearances? Right? It's, it's, just, it's just changing out the expectations while using the same category. It's replacing a bad vision with an anti-vision instead of a good vision, Right? And so God's more interested in that, and that's part of what, he's, what this exposes and pulls out of us, I think. But I also think that pointing out David's appearance highlights that, that in God choosing David, it doesn't mean that God is going to do something that his people don't want. It doesn't mean going without the gift of having a king who they can look at and be in awe of. It doesn't mean that what, 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 what we want is necessarily bad. If you were here last week, you know that, that it was less about what people longed for and more about where they were getting their standards for what, what they wanted and that they wanted to do it apart from God, without God. So that said, even though that that's, that's like obvious, I did say, if you heard, remember, I, I just said, uh, remember that word, youngest, Right? Because that word, youngest, is actually pejorative. It's not like saying like the youngest in a neutral sense of like it just in the, like this is the literal birth order. It's as if Jesse was saying like, I mean, yeah, technically I have one more, but that's the baby brother and the family runt. Like he doesn't count. Like that's the tone that his own dad has about him. I love the way... Um, I don't know if you pronounce his name Alter or Altair. It sounds fancier to say Altair, so I'm going to say Robert Altair. Um, he says this amazingly. He says, David is a kind of male Cinderella, left to the domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. This David story plays out the theme of the reversal of primogeniture. If you don't know what that means, primogeniture is just the, the tradition or the custom of uh, having only the oldest son being the heir or the primary heir, either exclusively or primarily. And so therefore, they get all the money, the land, and, and, and they're the only one that really matters, right? So at every point in the book of Genesis, God is simultaneously promising that Abraham's descendants would number the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea, and yet it is not going to happen in the way that you want or expect. It's going to be better. Robert Altair goes on. He says, um, David is not only the, not the oldest. It's hard to say. David is not only not the oldest. He's not even one of seven sons. And the Hebrew number of, for completion, that's seven. David is the eighth child and therefore not even there at all. He's not really an option. In every jot and tittle of Scripture, in every dotted I cross T, period and comma alike, God is always and deliberately affecting salvation in such a way as to push back against the world's values. God delivers not through man's strength or power, but by his grace alone, right? It's, I, I, you, 
if you've ever read the book of 1 Corinthians, you've got to wonder where Paul is going when he starts the, the epistle to the church in Corinth with this. He says, For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. First of all, like, I mean, I know I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but you don't have to say it, Paul. Like, you're talking to the whole church, right? Not many were powerful. Okay, fair. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world. Whoa. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to the things that are. Love you too, Paul. My point is that even as he is choosing David as a king after his own heart, he is, he is radically and subversively undermining everything about the nations that Israel has come to live and breathe. He is laying the, the, he's laying the path and almost like a, a red carpet toward David's inauguration, even in the choosing. And it was because David was dismissed and not even considered an option in many ways that he learned the skills needed to become king. I warned uh, Danny before the service that I was going to use a uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe illustration in the sermon this morning, and he loved hearing that. Um, Danny does not like the Marvel superhero movies. I think they're fun. Okay? They're fine. They're great. Okay? That's my position. Now you know. But what's interesting is when you think about the Marvel origin stories, for example, Spider-Man, yes, they start out as unlikely people. Peter Parker was just some guy, some kid who got bit by a radioactive spider. It was pure coincidence. It was an accidental, random thing that he became qualified then to be called or considered a superhero. Right? Right? Marvel gets it right in that, like, Peter Parker is just like a nerdy kid, right? But at the same time, it is his qualification that makes him a super, superhero in having superpowers, and that happening was just pure accident. It was random. David's origin story is similar, but very different, right? His superpower is in being intentionally chosen by God. It is in being called despite having zero worldly qualifications whatsoever. It was not random. It was not accident. It wasn't a number that came up in a lottery. It wasn't because he was drawing straws. It's because God saw him and provided for himself a king. Technically, if you know your Marvel superhuman superhero lore, um, you know that if, as I'm talking about this, actually, that's Steve Rogers as Captain America. And you would be right about that, but that, I'm going to let the sermon illustration die here. Okay. We have a problem besides my nerd level going up in this, right? If everything that I've said is true, if that's what it means for God to see, for, to see as God and, and to see man's benevolence in his heart, then it invites a troubling question, right? You might be thinking to yourself, Brad, are you saying that God looked at the hearts of the sons of Jesse unlike you know, Samuel was able or willing to do to whatever degree? He looked at their hearts and saw that they were bad, but David's was good? Or that maybe David's heart was 
just better, even significantly better than, than his brothers. Because if that's the case, then we're in for a world of hurt throughout the rest of this sermon series. Because we will find out that David functionally used his power as a king to, to coerce a woman into his bed. And then when she became pregnant, while her husband was off fighting a war David should have been fighting, he has him killed and murdered. David then, later, his own daughter is raped, and he doesn't execute judgment. He doesn't bring God's judgment to the situation. He, he lets it go unpunished. His, his, his oldest son and heir, Absalom, is so livid about that that it's the beginning of him rejecting and leading a civil war against his own father, which, is, which causes thousands of God's people to kill each other and die. Okay? The problem with Jesse's other sons is not that they were less benevolent than David, but that they simply weren't David. They simply were not whom God had chosen. Remember verse 1. God says, I have provided, I have seen among him, his sons for myself a king. That seeing is rooted not in David's performance or even potential performance, but in God's promise. And this gets into our third and final point, and we'll, we'll jump into the Q&A after this. But this is the foundation, like live into this paradox and this, this contradiction, right? Because this is where we see that everything following in the life of David is about the radiance of God's benevolence, the beauty of God's goodness, that he would choose someone even like David. The point is not David is qualified because of some superpower, because he was a shepherd. He was prepared, but he was still not qualified. It was God's choosing that qualified him. I'm not making this up. I told you, I told you guys last week that it was this passage where when even after David does all these horrible things, that, that God still calls him a man after his own heart. And that was what gave me as a non-Christian struggling with guilt and shame over just being, in many ways, my eyes were open for the first time to how bad and how not benevolent my own heart was and how selfish it was. And that verse was a source of encouragement in the sense that God can still see the good in my heart even if I don't see it. But that's actually not what it means. It's not what it means. Let me reread verse 14 of 1 Samuel 13. This is where it says, But now your kingdom will not, shall not continue. Samuel speaking to Saul. He says, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Pause there. The seeking out, the seeing, the providing for, what that is talking about is a calling. It is God choosing a man, and then when it says after his own heart, that means according to his own will, not Israel's will. It actually has nothing to do with David's heart. What God was, what God was seeing in David's heart was the, was the future working in David's heart. He was going to make in David's heart a home for himself. And the Lord has commanded him we also translate that word as ordained. 
to be the prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. In other words, to be a man after God's own heart is not about the place a man has in his heart for God, but the place that God has in his heart for man. Do you feel how big of a difference that is? Right? If, if it's the former, if, if to be a man after God's own heart is, to be, is, is about the place a man has in heart, his heart for God, then God's love and his choosing would then be on the basis of merit, on qualification. That's not grace. Even if that qualification is like, so like David's young, he's not the king yet, he hasn't done anything yet, but he has potential. Even if that is the way that we choose to understand it, it is still merit-based grace, and that is an oxymoron. Let me read another quote. That, oh gosh, I love this. John Woodhouse says this, whatever outstanding qualities we might see in this new king are the consequence, not the reason for God's choice of him. How often do we get that order mixed up? Aren't we, isn't God so lucky we get to be, we're on his kickball team? Right? The security of David's throne will rest on the solid foundation of God's promises, not on David's performance. That is what will make his reign so very different from Saul's. And then 2 Samuel verse 7 or sorry, chapter 7, verse 21, this is, we're, we're looking forward into the future. David has been, is king already, and this is what he says. King David, praying and speaking to God, says, because of your promise, and according to your own heart, it's the same phrase. It's according to God's will alone. You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. What David is articulating is the experience of God not calling the equipped, but equipping the called. This is what Paul is talking about. Like this, this passage, when Hannah and I were young and we were married less than a year, this passage rocked us when we've heard it taught on for the first time in seminary. It's a little bit late in the game. You should, this should rock you before you go to seminary just for future reference, but God is good and is gracious, Okay. Paul says, even as he, referring to God the Father, even as he chose us, import 1 Corinthians here, the foolish, the weak, the low and despised, the nothings, even as God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, according to the purpose of his will or after his own heart. They mean the same thing. God chose us, and only because God chose us, we can choose God. That is a gift, because apart from the place that God has in his heart for us, we would all be Saul. There are two implications for this. Okay. If you doubt, if you struggle with faith, it is often because we have started to believe, and I, this happens to me all the time, I realize this has happened in my heart after the fact, and it's like, oh my gosh, how did I slip into that again? It's because everything in the world around us judges and, 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 and incentivizes us to be basing our everything on appearance, okay? Okay. 
But it is not the strength of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith. That is a comfort because it means that if God has cho chosen us, if, if, if we are predestined to be adopted as sons, that means that God can only ever, ever look at us as a father looks at his children. And no father would disown his children for any reason that has to do with love. And so either God is love and he is a father and he loves like literally anyone and so therefore we are always and forever adopted as his heirs and his children and he loves us like that or God is not love and no, we're not saved but we have bigger problems because God's not love. That actually helps a lot but it also has an implication in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of despair even, right? Because we can, say, we can sing songs like God will never leave our side, no matter how much our experience of this broken world, or even one another, or even our sin, and God will never leave our side. That doesn't, that does not explain why God's allowing something terrible to happen in the midst of it. But it forever rules out any possibility whatsoever that it could be because he has abandoned you. That is simply not an option. It is impossible. For that to be true, God would have to cease being God. He can't do that because it would be a denial of who he is and only people act differently than who we are. We call it sin, okay? In sum, don't be fooled by Eliab as Samuel was or distracted by whatever other a, a kind of appearance, however we define that. Instead, what matters most is what's in the heart, what is benevolence. And by that, I mean first and foremost and especially what is in God's heart for you because that is the radiance of God's benevolence. And apart from that, David would have remained a shepherd. We would have never known his name. And he probably would be just as jacked up as he was before but he wouldn't have been the vehicle through which, G, through which God has demonstrated his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. Any good David had was because of what God did with him. That, that line when it says in verse 13, I love this, that the, Holy, that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. The, the more literal translation is it is rushing through David. Is rushing through David. In other words, it is active. It is moving. It didn't just get there and sit and be passive and still. It means that it is activating and working and moving and producing fruit, even when it can't be seen. And long before David actually becomes king, that means that whatever and any and all good that we might have to offer, we can thank God for it. We cannot boast in ourselves in that as a gift. All of this, because David, if he, he did many things. But maybe most importantly, he helped us see that even the greatest of all of Israel's kings was not sufficient to save us. 
Jesus is the true and better David. He personified and demonstrated and accomplished in his person and work what is true about God's, what it means to be a man after God's own heart, which is that God chose his son to be crushed so that orphans could be found. Everything else is just logistics, guys. Everything else is details. They're important details. This is the foundation for everything that follows in the life of David, and this is the foundation of what it means to say that we are saved by grace through faith. Because Jesus alone is the one that does the saving. We are not qualified. We are chosen. It's not based on appearance. It's based on the benevolence, but especially God's benevolence. Because without Jesus, baptism is just a bath, communion is just a snack, and the church is just a club. Let's see what questions we got this morning. All right. Okay, we have a question about community groups, but I'm going to punt on that and get back to you, whoever this was. Um, regarding unlikely heroes, Samwise Gamgee was right there. <laughs> oh. oh, it's so good. It hurts, but it's good. You're not wrong. You're so right. Also, I'm more of in a hobbit frame of mind right now because I'm reading that to Ransom at night, so okay. I, w I was a Tolkien nerd in a different direction, and I'm defending myself because you're right, and I'm sorry. Also, Tolkien writes, wrote Samwise Gamgee and Frodo as David split in two. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now go read it. Um, all right, next question. So what do we do with the way this encourages people in the church to do whatever they want because they are chosen and always forgiven? <laughs> okay, this is a great question, and it's one that, that Paul actually addresses very specifically in the book of Romans. When he's writing to the church, he anticipates somebody asking this question, and what he says is basically this. He says, wait, in the way that he frames it, it's like, so we, should we just sin then that grace may increase? Right? So that we are like even more forgiven. And he's, his, his whole point in response is saying like, if you actually understand how undeserving you are of grace, your heart can't not change. You can't, you can't go on doing that and, and feeling free. If you do, there is something about grace that you fundamentally, that has not actually like reached your heart. Now here's, here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about like, you're still going to sin, right? But just like Paul says, that becomes the, his flesh and not spirit. That becomes sin in him and not him because who he is has been fundamentally redefined in Christ. And he's trying to kill it. And you never stop on this side of, love, of, of, of heaven, right? We live in that tension. And that's why we always need God's forgiveness. But if we, if we start to see that as like, well, I can just do whatever I want. You don't get like, that's what Israel saw, thought when they, they chose Saul as a king for themselves instead of trusting, entrusting themselves to a God who would choose a king for himself, and that would be their good, okay? Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about that more if you have more questions. Um, if God loves David because of his work in David's heart, does God really dove, love David? Okay, good question. If I said that, I'm sorry, because I do not mean to say that God loves David because of the work he does on his heart. God loves David because God loves David. 
And because he loves him, he does the work in his heart. That's, that's the opposite relationship, right? God's love is the cause of the fruit. The fruit is not the cause of the love, okay? He chose, like, the order of this is very important, okay? God saw for himself a king and then sent Samuel to go anoint that king, and after the anointing, the Holy Spirit rushed in, okay? It is not, hey, I saw that the, Holy, that the Spirit of the Lord, uh, which would be really Trinitarian, trying to be Trinitarian here, like God didn't rush into David, produce the fruit, and then choose him any more than he does us. He chooses us from before the foundation of the world. That means there is no possible way that that could be true. It is purely and only and utterly ever because of his love. We're going to return to this a lot over the course of this fall. But this is the foundation. It's beautiful, isn't it? Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace that makes... I think, I think rarely, I never, none of us ever actually think that, man, God, it's such a good thing that you chose us for your kickball team. Like, we just don't actually think that, and, because that wouldn't be humble, right? But Lord, you, when you chose us before the foundation of the world, it means that we are freed. We are freed from doubt. We are freed, we are freed from there ever being a possibility of the lie that somehow your love could be earned or lost based on what we do and that our choosing you is only ever because you have chosen us. That is, that is freeing. Lord, there's nothing to do with that except to be grateful and to praise you. And we pray all this, Lord, in your name. Amen.